spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We will be anchoring in this passage, and I, and I will be highlighting the apparent paradox. Thank you. In this paradox, in in this passage, because in in one sense, we as Christians, who I assume most of us are somewhat reformed, somewhat, and then we we believe that salvation is not by works, but in one sense, it is by works. The only issue is it's not ours. So someone has worked, and it's kind of like that word free. Uh, The word free sounds like it doesn't cost anything, but when it comes to salvation, while we talk about salvation being free, in in another very real sense, it costs someone a lot. So uh, I hope that as we look at this, this topic, men at work, I want to highlight for you some very practical implications of the, of the theology of the cross. And I want to... I, I was so disappointed that Christoph started off so controversially trying to aggravate you all, because I thought I would do that. <sighs> well, we'll give it a go. And, and, and so if you're here and you're at all, at all inclined to being lazy, uh, I want to uh, be the Holy Spirit's boot today and encourage you not to be lazy. There is a a term that's being used now for men who are up to the age of 35 or so, who still live at home, who still sleep in, who've never had a job, that when they do get up, they expect mum to make their lunch and, and change the TV channel for them or whatever, and they live on the couch and they play computer games. It's called the Peter Pan syndrome. It's an actual syndrome that's been identified. And recently there was a court case in America, you may have seen this case, the case of Michael Rotondo, where he's a 31-year-old whose parents had to take him to court to force him to finally move out of the house. He says this in the court case, he said, "'It's really unfair to me and really outrageous,' said Rotondo, an unmarried father of one, after the decision, the judge said, get out, um, I think in legal terms, though I'm paraphrasing, I, uh, after the decision, I really don't want to stay there. I've been trying to leave there for a long time. They've stopped feeding me. They cut me off the family phone plan. And he's, he's bewildered and he still hasn't left home, even though a judge has given him an order to leave. According to Pew Research, in 2016, this is the latest research that I could get, men aged between 18 to 36 were more likely to still be sharing a roof with their parents than, uh, than living alone or with a roommate or a partner. More and more can't find a job or aren't looking. Nearly 40 years ago, only 6.3% of prime age men did not work at all, over the course of a year. In 2016, that number is around 13%. In other words, it's doubled. Men who see no point in going and getting a job. So if that's you, I hope we can change your thinking about that. So a record number of young people today 
according to Eric Metaxas, I see one of his books over there, Eric Metaxas writes, are getting stuck in the transition between childhood and adulthood. The Peter Pan syndrome, in which no boy ever has to grow up and be a man, is a growing phenomenon in the 21st century. Uh, Writing in the New York Post, Carol Markowitz is not amused, calling it a tragic twist on the 2006 romantic comedy Failure to Launch. She writes, a generation of damaged boys are turning into impaired men. And as seen by the mocking coverage of this court case related to Michael Rotondo, we're treating this development like a joke, encouraged to ridicule and condemn them for it. And here's the crux of her argument, writes Metaxas. The Rotondo family story is a warning to modern families with no Hollywood love story at the end. While the media lambast Michael as an entitled millennial, that only tells part of the story. This is an all-out failure in how we as a society are raising boys. She quotes the 2010 study that found that boys have higher rates of suicide, conduct conduct disorders, emotional disturbances, premature death, juvenile delinquency, more than their female peers, as well as lower grades at school, test scores and college attendance rates. It's no wonder, Markowitz says, that the outspoken clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson has become a father figure to a growing group of lost boys. Peterson, she says, is taking the place of parents who have failed to instruct their sons and is telling them to put their lives in order, even to clean up their room. How dare he? And this is Jordan Peterson. He wrote a book called, um, basically it's called 12 Rules, in which he's writing to young men giving them 12 rules for how they should live life. And it has sold in the millions. He came to Australia and thousands of these millennials turned up to hear him and many left saying, why hasn't anyone else told us to do any of this? Which only leaves me to conclude that my own son, who must have heard me tell him tidy up his room, must be selectively deaf. His number two rule is treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping. (laughs) The audacity of the man telling young boys they have to take responsibility for their own life. (laughs) Point number seven, rule number seven, pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient, which means whatever you want. Do what is worth doing, not what you want to do, which means if you are a young man here today and you spend more than half an hour on video games a day, that is disgraceful. This is good preaching, I'm telling you, this is good. I'm, despite the looks that every young guy just gave me, it's, this is good. Rule number nine, assume that the person you are listening to might know something you don't. These are three of Peterson's 12 rules. Now, we looked at this key scripture and I I want us to see in Ephesians 2.10 this point because I said to you before that one of the tenets of Protestant Christianity at the very least is that we are not saved by works, yet we are saved by the work of Christ. So we're not saved by works. But you notice the next verse because Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace I've been saved, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. It's a memory verse. You should know it. But the, the next verse, verse 10, it actually says, because someone's done the work and saved you by grace, you now have to get to work. And it puts it this way. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is not a new idea. 
God has created for us to work. God has in particular designed for men to work. I, because there's no women here, I can tell you this. I'm prepared to tell you this. But if you breathe one word of what I'm about to tell you, outside of this room, no, no women will want to listen to a men's conference, but it'll be fine. But here's, I am what's called a complementarian. Now that may not mean anything to you. Are you a complementarian, Carl? Oh, Carl. <laughs> Carl's a complementarian. I'm a complementarian. What that basically means is I think men and women are different. Now, that doesn't sell well today because we are in a culture that is telling everyone that men and women are equal in every regard, even biologically. And I just think that's stupid. I'm a complementarian. I actually think God has called men to bear greater responsibility. As a husband, I'll show you this in a moment. We come to Genesis chapter 2, and I think we need to get a grip on what we might call creation theology because it has more to do, so much more to do with some of the, the silly debates about science. It has to do with who we are and our relationship to God and how we relate men, how we as men relate to women. This is creation theology. The Lord, to, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Notice that Adam wasn't created in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, just a thought. Genesis chapter 1 is kind of the overview. Genesis chapter 2 dials in and and gives us some of the detail of what is broadly spoken of in Genesis chapter 1. How did that garden get there? Someone planted that garden, and we know who planted it because it tells us that God planted a garden. So God worked, and that's not a surprise. We know that it says that in six days God worked, and we we can see that this, this garden is believed to have been, by some scholars, hundreds of square miles. This was huge. This would have taken Adam, if he had never sinned, would have taken him a good lifetime to have just inspected it all. So, so I, I want you to get this picture that, that we're created in the image of a God who works. God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Do you notice when this was happening? I I, want to point this out. How is this man expected to work? And the the whole point we'll see in a moment is, uh, we'll come to the timing of this. But how was Adam expected to work? It, It says, God put him in that garden to work. To work. Why? Why? You know, how many of us think of one day we're going to be in heaven where we'll never have to do another thing ever again? I'm not so sure that that's what our eternal destiny looks like. We are created. We are creatures who are created to work. Now, how is Adam expected to work? Well, he was expected to tend the garden. He was expected to, to do something around that garden. That garden wasn't going to take care of itself. Adam was expected to do something. But God had always intended, and we, and we read this in Genesis 2, where after some time, God declares it's not good for man to be alone. There's a creation theology concept as well. And so he created woman. And that woman was to complement the man. That's why Carl and I are complementarians. And there may be a few other closet complementarians here as well. And so God had created Adam with a capacity to work at being a husband. Um, Carl won't know the answer to this, but who knows that being a husband takes work? One guy, two guys, three guys, four guys, five guys. The rest of, the rest of you are just gutless. Why don't you put your hands up? You know it takes work. I say that in love. It does. It takes work. You actually have to work at it, to work at being a husband because uh, one of the things that I do in, in marriage preparation with couples is explain to them that they are approaching their relationship and life together on the assumption that they both speak the same language. And you very soon discover that your wife has a language and it's not English. <laughs> or Deutsch. <laughs> 
It's her language. So, you know, what husband comes home from a, a day at work and you come home and you say, hello, dear, how are you? And she says this, fine. <laughs> anything happened today? No. Is there anything the matter? No. What has she just told you? Something's the matter. And it's probably whose fault? And see, with uh, this idea of having a wife, I, I'm going I'm to give you a radical concept about marriage. Marriage, sex, and babies is a package deal. Stunned silence. I know, you don't hear it often. I, can, I, I can't blame you for being sitting there just stunned in silence. Because marriage... Sex and babies is a package deal. You take one of those things out of that trinity of purpose for marriage and it doesn't quite make sense. See, part of the work that Adam was expected to do was to be a father. And and both of these realms, I'm going to introduce a word that Jordan Peterson uses in one of his rules it's the word responsibility because Adam's responsibility he was in a garden God had showed him the garden he'd showed him the the trees that that provided fruit that he could eat I'm sure he enjoyed that he was now expected to show Eve we can eat this we can eat this we can enjoy this he was expected to be a provider he was expected to be a provider this is a responsibility that men have now, please, I don't want to be misunderstood here. If there are occasions and times when men may take up a course of study and their wife has to go to work. I understand that. I'm not, please don't think I'm being silly about this. But I want you to notice all of these responsibilities happened at a particular time. And here's the key word. It's underlined. It all happened. All these expectations happened when? Before the before the fall. Before the fall. Before the fall of man. Can I tell you that that fall is a... Is a we, we've abbreviated that, right? The fall. And I've heard people say this. That's when Adam fell from grace. That's what the fall is. That's not what the fall is. That's when Adam fell into grace. Not from grace. He fell into sin. Which means... He fell into grace, just by the way. So all of this happened when everything was perfect. Now, just when Adam sinned, I I, I love the way Scripture uses so many things in an artful way, such as numbers and colors and directions. North, south, east, west are all used as part of God's redemptive language. Notice when Adam sinned, God sent him out the east gate and the eastward trend of man began. East in scripture is a direction of rebellion from God. God set cherub at the east gate and drove man out the east gate. Remember, the opposite is also true that the westward move is a move toward God. If you know anything about the tabernacle, when the tabernacle was set up, It required workmanship and it had to be built in such a way, if this is east, the holy of holy place had to be as west as it could be in that temple because west speaks of coming to God. And so we read in Genesis 3.23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground which he was taken. It it says, from verse 17, it it actually says, uh, when God turned up in the cool of the day to what appeared to be a ritual to work, to walk with with Adam, a beautiful picture of man's created dependency on God, even in a perfect world. And they had that conversation, what what have you done? Where are you? And to, uh, it says in verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. You shall return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. In verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. You see, he was created with a capacity to sweat. I don't know. I, I genuinely do not know if Adam would have ever sweated before the fall. I don't know. But here it says, from now on, you're going to work by the sweat of your brow. It's not going to be easy. So what do we learn about work? It's not always easy. In fact, I sometimes tell my kids, work is that which you've got to do even when you don't want to, have, don't want to do it. And I think if there are young men here who think, I want a job that I can really enjoy, that that's not always going to be work. And I've discovered as a pastor that there are, there are parts of my job that are not enjoyable, but they've got to be done. And I don't enjoy it. I don't, en- I don't always enjoy confrontation. I don't enjoy, there are aspects of disciplining people. I don't enjoy it. But it's got to be done. And if you're a parent here, you know this is true. There are parts of being a parent that you won't enjoy, but you'll still enjoy being a parent. You hear what I'm saying? This is work. This is what work's all about. So this is the point. After the fall, Adam had to work harder. He had to work harder. Remind you of that verse in in Genesis 3.19. It says this, by the sweat of your face. So God had already designed him to sweat. Because of this eventuality, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God had designed Adam with a capacity to work, capacity to work. So we see that God had called Adam to work before he fell, and even with all of the difficulties and obstacles in the way to working, God had already anatomically designed him to work, physically work, to do things. You know, there are some 5,700 anatomical differences between a man and a woman. I say that because the whole transgender movement thinks it's about cutting and slicing genitals and that equals equal rubbish now i'm not trying to be stupid here but how many men over 50 can touch their toes without bending their knees thank you your answer your, your laugh tells me a lot i can't in fact i and i have i have a medical certificate to tell you i can't oh, you think i'm joking and i discovered this the tendons running in the back of a man's leg, especially when you get up around the six-foot mark, are completely different to the way tendons run in a woman's leg because my wife can tie herself in knots. I'm just like, how do you do that? And she just says, well, it's easy. Everyone can do it. No, not everyone can do it. Do you notice how many six-foot-seven gymnasts there are at the Olympics? I've never seen one. Because when you get to that stage, the, the anatomical structure of tendons in the the legs of a man make it very it can be done it's just very difficult so so god has designed men in a way that they can work but it says that we read here that men would have to work harder it would just be hard be hard so i I guess this is important for young men to know because if you're if you're waiting for that job that you can you know i just want a job i can enjoy i want to work so i can really enjoy it Well, it's never going to be like that. There are going to be times on a Monday morning where you're going to have to get out of bed and go and do something. And if you haven't got a job and you're looking for a job and you can't find one, go and volunteer. Could you use some volunteers here, Carl? Absolutely, so could we. We have uh, community corrections bring a team of guys down um, every week to help, and I think this is good for their soul. I'll point this out in a moment. And sometimes we don't have many, so we pray that more people will break the law so that we... <laughs> so all those things 
that man was created to do before the fall, now because of the fall, man now has to work harder. What to do? To protect. You see, now with the fall, man's relationship to nature became estranged. Man's relationship with man became estranged. Man's relationship with himself became estranged. Man's relationship with God became estranged. There was the need to protect. Man had to work hard to protect. Man had to work harder to provide all because of what happened at the fall. And I'm going to use this term pastor in the sense that I think every husband is responsible to be the spiritual head. I told you I'm a complementarian. The spiritual head of his household to lead his wife in, in spiritual uh, disciplines, in, in praying for her, praying with her, praying for the kids, opening scripture at the meal table, talking in a pastoral sense. I think every man is called to be a pastor. And so it's, it's going to take work to do that because you might think, and I've heard guys say this, oh, I can't do that. I'm no good at public speaking. The fact that you said you're, you're, you're no good at public speaking and instead of saying, oh, I'm not very good, tells me that your English isn't so great and you probably do need to work at it. And this is the point. God has designed it. God has designed for work, particularly for a man, to bring dignity. To bring dignity. Don't you ever considered the Old Testament principle that's embedded in the law of Moses, the Mosaic law? And it's a weird law. It's a law that, that went something like this. Whenever you harvest your fields, don't go back to see if you missed any. Anyone remember why? Why? That's right, so the poor can gain a meal. So can you imagine if it was Australia? It would be the poor will be waiting outside your gate as you've come in from your first harvest and you are to tip the things into their bowls and send them home. But that's not what the Mosaic law says, is it? If you recall this, here's an example of it in Leviticus 23 verse 22. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. So they're actually told to leave some there. Nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, which means go back and have a look and see what you, can, see what you missed. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And how were the poor and the sojourner, the sojourner, the immigrant, the refugee, how were they to get those gleanings? Thank you. They were expected to go back, to go into the orchard, to go into the harvest field with their sack and pick or harvest or cut or whatever it is and we have a picture of that remember in the book of Ruth Ruth gleaned after the harvesters of Boaz why because she was dirt poor but you see how God has ordained for everybody to work one of the problems in our country is that we have a social welfare mentality that convinces people that they are not just, not just able to get benefits, they're entitled to get benefits, and not only entitled, it's their right to have it. And can I tell you how far removed that is from the biblical picture, that your soul, it does your soul good to work? So, Work brings a sense of dignity, and you might think, yeah, well, that's Old Testament. Now we're, in, now we're under grace in the New Covenant. And if I haven't already made the point clear from Ephesians 2.10, and for those who at this Tasmanian Men's Bible Conference don't realise that Ephesians is the New Testament, let me, let me remind you that it says that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And I know that sounds all very religious, but I actually think that can be very, very practical. One of the missions agencies we support as a church in Lagana is Wycliffe. And they have got to be the most unsexiest, if ever there are any missions organisations that are ever sexy. Wycliffe is the most unsexiest of all the missions agencies. You know why? Because they'll send a missionary in to learn a language. Sometimes that language has no written form. 
they gift a written form of that language to that people group. That could take another 10 years. They then will take a portion of scripture and translate it into that language. That could take another 10 years. So after 40 years, they might have a paragraph of scripture and we've paid them whatever we pay a missionary a year for 40 years. Can you see how inefficient that is? But tell me this, has that missionary worked to achieve that? Absolutely. Why doesn't God just gift the missionary? (laughs) Gift him, just, you know, like the matrix. Load me up. (laughs) I need to know how to fly this helicopter. There it is. What? Because God has ordained for us to work. God has ordained for us to work. How long did it take you to do your PhD? Six years. You, gee, you're slow. Took me seven. So, <laughs> but why? Why not just you know? Why? Why couldn't the gift of God just given Carl his dissertation the first month? Because. There is something about the process of work that God has ordained that's good for your soul. And again, I said to you, you might think, well, that's all Old Testament stuff. How about New Testament? Well, here it is. We find in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, this passage, for even when we were with you, we, gave, uh, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to... What's that horrible four-letter word? Work. <laughs> Sorry, you may not have come here today expecting any of the speakers to use four-letter words. But I'm using it, work. Let him not eat. This is so countercultural to where we're at today. So countercultural. Let him work. I, I, I hope to convey to people that if, if there's a physical incapacity, you can still work in prayer. There's always work. We can labour in prayer. I mean, the Apostle Paul said he laboured in prayer. We can work. I think God has actually ordained that work enriches our body, our mind and our soul. One of my heroes, F.W. Boreham, he was the pastor of Hobart Baptist Tabernacle from 1906 to 1916. And he he wrote to young pastors in his biography, his autobiography called My Pilgrimage. When he described that season of his life, he he started pastoring. He was Charles Spurgeon's last disciple and Spurgeon, uh, Thomas Spurgeon uh, sent him to New Zealand as one of the pioneer um, Baptist pastors of New Zealand. And from there, he would go out on horse and jig and visit the people in his church, often riding, sometimes for a complete day to make it to how far people had travelled to come to his church just south of Dunedin in a small town called Mosgill. And when he came to Hobart, he, he, he didn't own a horse or a jig. He walked. And if you know where the top of Elizabeth Street is in Hobart, it's, uh, uh, Elizabeth Street is on an angle like this. It's, it's like straight up. And, and, and Borum, when he was... 15 years of age, was accidentally flung under a freight train and was dragged 70 metres down the track and the result was nine months in hospital but they amputated his right leg below the knee. And he, for the rest of his life, would wear a prosthesis and he would break that femur another four times throughout his life. And he says... That with, with that, I'm telling you that because I need you to understand that when he says he would spend three afternoons in pastoral visitation, that meant he took his walking stick, which I have in my office, and he would walk the streets of Hobart visiting people in his church. In 1916, he says, in a very flowery, eloquent way, in 19... 19- 15, to give you context, he rallied all the young men of his church to defend the cause of the empire. In 1916, he says, there was not one night in which his head did not rest on his own pillow. In other words, he took no time off. Every day of that year, 
he was delivering telegrams to the parents, the young boys that he had summoned to the cause of the empire. And he did it on foot and he did it not three afternoons a week but six afternoons a week and then preached twice on Sunday. Even pastors have to work. And he writes in his biography, My Pilgrimage, I have found that walking to a pastoral visitation is not only good for the body, it's good for the mind and it's good for the soul. I've had people with depression come to me and say, I want God to deliver me from this depression. And I believe God could. But I do have a question. Do you walk? And in 100% of the times when I've asked that question, 100%, the answer is no. That's an odd question. Why are you asking? Because I think we're created to walk. I think walking is good for your soul. For we are his workmanship, reminding you of our text. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me show you this equation that I've got. This is something Jordan Peterson hasn't quite put it as eloquently as I'm about to put it. If you see him, let him know that. Effort leads to reward. Reward leads to satisfaction. And you might, I know that there are people here over 50 and you're going, I'm not even going to write that down. I've known that. I've known that forever. What do you... But there are people who are here who go, what are you talking about? And as you may have the latest iPhone, that's, that I'm not trying to be silly here, please understand me. But we, we are in a culture where they would rather go into debt than to delay that gratification and work and wait and put effort in to get the reward. And I think there's tremendous satisfaction in that. I could share stories about my own children. Um, My daughter, my oldest daughter, moved to Hobart. She asked me, Dad, could you please buy me the latest iPhone? And I said what any loving father who loves their daughter incredibly would say. I said, no. And she went into the Telstra store in Hobart and said, I want to get an iPhone. They said, What's your job? I'm a student at UTAS. See you later. (laughs) Telstra wouldn't give her one. And thank you, Telstra. So she did what any other 19-year-old teenager who really, really, really had to have an iPhone. Dad, you don't understand. i got to have an iPhone. Sorry. (laughs) I just had flashbacks. (laughs) She went into the Optus store. (laughs) and Optus slid the contract across the table said sign here and the phone's all yours that contract meant that she would have uh, whatever it was $900 iPhone at the time that would cost her something like $2300 but that didn't matter they were giving it to her so she thought she walked out of that store with her brand new iPhone in um uh, what, what was that, uh, that street? Was it? Yeah, near the mall. Was it? Liverpool Street. Li- li- yeah, it was. It was Liverpool Street. She walks out of Liverpool. She's got a brand new phone. She does this. No, I did that because i got a protective case and this is carpet. I'm all cool with that. But <laughs> she did it without a case, right on the pavement. And for the rest of her two-year contract, she had a phone (laughs) that was cracked and didn't quite work all the time. And I'm saying that as a metaphor for sometimes when you haven't worked and you haven't gone through the sweat of, of having that satisfaction that you've worked for something you've got, you don't actually prize it as much as you might. I want to come down the home stretch now. You, you're, we're all okay, we're tracking with this? 
three of you. Great. And it's this. Because that passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, I think is powerful. Because it talks about our salvation. We who were dead in trespasses and sins have been made what? Alive in Christ. It's not that we were nearly dead. It's not that we were, as I've seen some gospel films, you know, we're bobbing up and down in the ocean waiting for the rescue boat. We were at the bottom of the ocean. There's not an ounce of oxygen left. We were not, as Princess Bride made a new category, mostly dead. We were dead dead. And Christ made us alive. And he's given us, in reality, a second chance. And now I want to put some legs on this for you. Because when the reformers got this, it changed the world. Literally changed the world. And you may never have heard of the Protestant work ethic. But the Protestant Reformation redefined how we viewed work. It redefined it. And I, I guess we live in a world now where the world views work as activity uh, to achieve a result. You go to work so you can earn a day's pay, so you can pay your bills. Around the time of the Reformation, work had been very Roman Catholicised. And if you're a Roman Catholic here, I'm not meaning to be offensive, but maybe I can put a stone in your shoe and be challenging. Roman Catholics viewed work as done in, in a, what we might call a hierarchy of vocations. And at the very top of that hierarchy of vocations were the priests, cardinals, bishops, archbishops, and so on. And then there was everyone else, right down to the common people who did their work. But essentially, all that work went toward the merit of your own salvation. And that played out, of course, in salvation, in how they viewed salvation. When Protestants came along, Protestants, of course, were gripped by that Ephesians passage, at least, gripped by it. And the Protestant Reformation reminded us of the Bible's declaration of the priesthood of all believers. So it's not that, they, they, it's not that the Protestants took these guys up here and brought them down here. It's that they took these guys down here and brought them up here. In other words, what, what happened, as we look at this in 1 Peter 2.9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. What a powerful thing to understand the priesthood of all believers. So this doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, we're all equal. So in one sense, we're egalitarian in one sense, in that we, we all have equal access to God. There's no more male or female, Jew, Gentile, slave or free. But you realise that verse talks about our access to God, not our calling our access to God so here we are we, we have total uninhibited equal access to the father that should excite you and and it gave a sense of the dignity of the most menial vocation Martin Luther said something like this the man who digs the latrine is of equal standing to the bishop in the cathedral this led, this understanding led to this concept that every man's work was his worship and it was for God and of God. What a powerful concept. How many of us will go to work this Monday and think, this is for you, God. And I hope if you take anything from Christoph's talk that, you, that we all recognise that everything we do is for, by and of God, even our work on a Monday morning. That's why turning up for work before you're due to be there glorifies Christ because you're doing it for Christ. And you think, well, that's a bit of a stretch. No, not really, because it actually says this more or less in Colossians 3.17. Well, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so I want to kind of come back to where I started, that 
that work is a responsibility that men in particular have. That there are things that my wife will never know about because I want to shield her from that. I want to protect her from that. I want to bear greater responsibility for whatever issues and problems we have. So let me, let me sort of put some theology with legs on it for a moment, that there is a relationship between work and responsibility in our relationship with Christ. I'm going to use two words here. So we've got this picture here, closeness and responsibility. And if I was to ask you the rhetorical question of which you're all expected at this point to say yes, the rhetorical question would be who would like to be closer to Christ? Yeah, me, him, <laughs> us. Would you like to be closer to Christ? And the answer is, yeah, I think, I think so. Now, whether we've actually thought what that involves, I'm not sure. But if you would, I want you to see this. I'm not inventing it. I'm not trying to put it into Scripture. I want to be faithful to Scripture and draw it out of Scripture. Of Christ's disciples, the 12, who were the closest to him? John? Peter? James? John, Peter, James. The fact that we all know that says that it, we can see it in Scripture. Those are the three that he took with him to the Mount of Transfiguration. Those are the three that he often took... You know, so we, we've got this picture. Peter, James and John. Um, so they are close. It, it's, what's interesting is that we, we read of James and John, the brothers. You know, what were they called? Bonerge, which means sons of... Carl. You're a PhD, you should have answered that like that. Sons of thunder. <laughs> the sons of thunder. Remember when their mother came to Christ and said, Grant it that my son sit where? One on your right, one on your left. And Jesus said to her, Can they drink from the cup I'm about to drink? And that cup was the cup of greatest responsibility, the cross which meant the greatest suffering because he who bears the greatest responsibility will have to endure the greatest hardship. I want to write that down. If you're going to tweet it, just it's at Dr. Andrew C. if you're on Twitter. And that relationship between work and responsibility, I want you to see these three, Peter, James and John, were given the greatest responsibility in the church. James became one of the early martyrs. John, they boiled in oil around 65 AD and they couldn't kill him. Well, not at that time. And they didn't. He actually saw out his life. Then we come down to the 12. The 12 disciples. They had a closeness to Christ, no doubt about it, but they also had a responsibility that was greater than who were the next group of people that Christ related to. The, someone say the 70 disciples. <clears throat> the 70 disciples. There were 70 mentioned. And then we can go down the list. But do you notice every, every step further removed from Christ, the responsibility diminishes. So here's the point. If you say, Jesus, I really want to know you. And next thing, your pastor taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, could you help out on Sunday by, by making sure there's toilet paper in the toilets and that the, the vomit that has just been spilled on some of the carpet, you wipe, could you just wipe that up for us? And you look at him like, not now, because I want to get closer to Jesus. <laughs> I've had people say to me, Pastor, I just want to serve. How can I help? I really want to help. I go, great. Could you mow the lawn? Oh, no, no. I want to do something meaningful. And I'm thinking, oh, great. Now I've got to do it. <laughs> But you see this link. The closer we get to Christ, the more we will be responsible for. And here's a thought. Every dad needs to get this for their sons. We sometimes in a church, and I've made this mistake as a pastor, thought, I'm going to wait for someone who's responsible to step up so I can give them responsibility. But this is what I've discovered. 
Jesus gave responsibility and that responsibility created responsible people. And if you doubt this, look at history because you'll see it in the war. And with this thought in mind, I want to close with this analogy. This is a scene from one of my favourite movies. It was voted by a Christian movie rating organisation when it came out uh, as one of the greatest Christian movies of all time. If you don't like violence, don't ever watch any Mel Gibson movie generally, but he is in this one and he stars in a movie called The Patriot. Anyone seen it? A couple of people. It's a great movie, great movie. It's the story of a man who was a soldier and he came uh, to the revolutionaries who were saying, we've got to stand up against the British and the Redcoats. And, and, and he said, I'm not going to fight for you. I'm sick of war. I've had enough of war. I'm just not interested in war. I just don't want to go there ever again. And... They said, but you're a trained commander of men. We need you in the game. He said, no, not my war. I've got five kids to look after. Not interested. You go and fight your war. Leave me out of it. The next day, the Redcoats came and killed his middle son. They then took his eldest son prisoner. And suddenly he realized the war he thought he had no responsibility in was now his war. And when we as men realise that we are in a war now. We are in a war. We are in a culture war where Christianity is being dismantled. I heard Mark say it before. I spoke with Ben before the, the conference. He was talking about it. Who is responsible for challenging unrighteousness in our state? Who's responsible? I think we are. I really do. And what will it take could you please just stand with me for a moment what will it take that means on your feet what will it take to challenge unrighteousness in our state what will it take it's going to take a four-letter word and that word is work and if you agree there we go thank you men i think we need to get to work thank you mark